Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. I want to start by trying to describe uh, this book, which I was once given as a gift. It's a book called Zoom, and it's a little hard to describe because it has no, <coughs> excuse me, no words in it. It was actually uh, Carol Wilson, who's another teacher here, who gave it to me one year for my birthday. So I opened it up at this birthday party and noticed right away it didn't have any words in it, and opened it up to the first page, which is a picture of a rooster. So I thought, oh, that's very peculiar. <laughs> you know, Carol just gave me a book without any words in it <laughs> about a rooster. That's really strange. But then I turned the page, and the next page was a picture of these children who were looking through a window at the rooster. So I thought, okay, this is a book about children and their pet rooster. And I turned the page and could see the children standing at that window, but from a far distant view. And then turned the page and saw a child's hand moving that house around in a sandbox. So I thought, oh, okay, those children weren't really children, they were toys. <laughs> everything that I'd seen previously, those children and the rooster, they were just toys that are being played with by this child in a sandbox. And then I turned the page and saw a picture of a little boy holding a book. And on the book cover was that child playing with the toys in the sandbox. And this boy is sitting, the boy who's holding the book is sitting on a chair on an ocean liner. So I thought, Okay, now I've got it. <laughs> this is a story of a boy who goes on a trip on an ocean liner who's reading a book that happens to be about these children and a rooster. And then I turned the page and saw that the entire ocean liner with the boy and his book was actually on a billboard on a bus. <laughs> then turned the page and saw that the bus with its billboard that had the boy and the ocean liner and the whole thing on it was actually on a television screen. And the television screen was being watched in a desert by a cowboy. And you could tell that he was a cowboy because he was sitting in the desert right next to this cactus and there was the television. And so I thought, okay, this is the story of a cowboy who's watching television. The show on television happens to be about all the particular things I'd seen before. And then turn the page and that whole scene of the cowboy and his cactus and his television set sitting in the desert turned out to be on a stamp. And the stamp was on a letter to the Solomon Islands. You turn the page and then um, there's the picture of these people standing in the Solomon Islands receiving the letter with the stamp on it and the cowboy and the whole thing. And then you see all of that from the point of view of a pilot in an airplane. And then as I kept turning the page, I would see that whole scene of the people reading their letter with the stamp and the whole thing on it just receding and receding and receding. And all I could see was the earth. So I looked up at Carol and I said, I feel like God. <laughs> and it was a wonderful present. It's turned out to be just about my favorite book. <laughs> so I want to talk tonight a little bit about perspective. <laughs> um, there's so much that 
we tend not to be tuned into, that we're not aware of ordinarily, we're not open to. And our understanding changes when either we can make a shift in perspective or if we even understand the possibility that there is a shift in perspective that might somehow illuminate or clarify what we're seeing or might give us a sense of some rest or some ease. Some of you have heard me talk about uh, some years ago now when I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and some friends found out that I had never been to the opera. So they took me to see an opera. And it happens that Santa Fe, up until next year actually, uh, because they're remodeling the opera house, has this beautiful opera house which is an open air theater. So that in many places, what you're looking at is that dazzling expanse of sky, which is so vast in New Mexico behind the stage. And I had a seat like that. So it was amazing for me sitting at my first opera to um, be sitting in such a way that I was watching people behave somewhat hysterically, I thought, on stage, or certainly operatically. And behind them was this vast, unimpeded, immense open sky. And I just kept looking from one to the other. It was definitely a shift in perspective. And that is the power of our own awareness. That is also the, the nature of equanimity. It's understanding the power of how we use our attention and how we place our attention. And even if we don't come to an answer, even if we don't come to some resolution, what we do come to is a feeling of not being so caught, not being fixated, so trapped in the particular opera that is being played out in front of us, even when we don't know how the story will end. Still, we can, we can have that sense of openness, of possibility. That's the nature of equanimity. It's the nature of wisdom. It's the nature of perspective. And it's, of course, a big question as we begin a process of leaving a somewhat uh, protected, restricted environment such as this and begin to contemplate the complexities that ordinarily await one in the world. I've said many times, I may have already said it here, um, that from the beginning of my practice, the Buddha was a tremendous symbol for me of integration. He seemed to me to be a whole being, to be complete in himself. Not like many of us who may feel we're one kind of person when we're all alone and we're very different when we're with people or if we're in a position of some power or um, glory, we behave in one way and when we're uh, in a position of beseeching or having to be more humbled, we're, we feel like we're totally different or um, we identify with our roles so much that we don't know who we are when we step outside of a role. That many of us, if not most of us, experience our lives somehow fragmented and pulled apart and confused. And um, I saw the Buddha right from the beginning as somebody other than that, somebody who was just himself, whether he was alone or with others, being still or wandering. It's a symbol of tremendous integration and wholeness. You might say that the threads of that kind of perspective, of possibility, of equanimity, of compassion, were the threads that guided his life, no matter what situation he was in. And that, of course, is the possibility that is available to us. It's a question, by and large, of waking up, of being able to use all of the different circumstances of our lives 
in some way that is, is part of a whole that is seamless, that reflects back to us our deepest conviction and our greatest values. One of the sittings, I use the example of uh, meditation being like walking a tightrope, which was um, an example that I sometimes heard. Also, I've heard it talked about as being like walking a razor's edge, which is a little disquieting, actually, (laughs) or a lot disquieting. But the particular quality that actually broadens the path that takes away that feeling of, oh no, (laughs) I better not fall, um, is faith. This is scriptural, I didn't just make this up. (gasps) It's faith that (laughs) actually allows us to walk a path as though we were walking a tie rope and as though we were walking a boulevard at the same time because it broadens, it opens, it allows us to use everything rather than uh, resent and withdraw and cling to some experiences while we're trying to push away others. It's the openness of the heart with the quality of faith that lets us say, okay, let me include this and let me include this and let me include this. This has come to be or this has arisen. Can I be with it? With compassion, with equanimity, with perspective. And so suddenly that narrow little path where it's so easy to fall starts to broaden and broaden and broaden and just get bigger and bigger until there is no falling because there's no edge. That seamlessness where our inner work and our outer circumstances are not divided, they're not cut apart, they're not fragmented in some way. And a tremendous amount of this understanding comes through being very in touch with and able to recognize and able to discern the factor of our own intention. There abides what we really care about. There abides the karmic seeds that we are planting. We need to be in touch with our own intention. So that when the Buddha first began teaching, the teaching, the way he approached the law of karma or conditionality or interrelatedness was quite revolutionary because at that time in the social systems of India, it was very much the case with the caste system being quite rigidified that morality was considered to be very much tied to one's birth, one's gender, one's social class, one's amount of money, all kinds of things were were, um, confused or tied into the idea of the moral nature of an action. So for example, what was proper and appropriate and uplifting and wonderful and um, skillful for a Brahmin male might have been considered immoral for a Brahmin female or for an outcast or someone of um, a different social order. And the Buddha came along and said that all of that was absolutely irrelevant whether social class or birth or gender, whatever, it's irrelevant. What matters is the intention behind an action. It doesn't matter who you are, how you were born, whatever. If you act in a way that's born out of greed or hatred or delusion, it will have a certain consequence. And if you act in a way that's born out of love, out of compassion, out of sympathetic joy, out of wisdom, that will have a certain consequence. So in that one teaching, the Buddha denied all validity to social class in terms of spiritual practice and returned the responsibility for one's own actions and the nature of one's actions to everybody, each personally and individually. That when we are in touch with our motivation and we see how we're acting, we understand the kind of 
life stream we are participating in, we're molding. And we can transform our lives through transforming the field of our motivation. When we are in touch with our motivation, then our lives are seamless. Because it doesn't matter whether you're sitting here in this hall or you're out in the dining room and somebody jostles you, heaven forbid, or you're in downtown Barry or somewhere really exciting like New York um, or on an airplane or you've just gotten a raise and a promotion or you just got fired or as all of life's circumstances unfold the place we return to for our sense of ourselves, of our wholeness, of our integrity is knowing our own motivation behind our actions. And that's for us to know. What's wonderful about that teaching, I think, is that it also relieves us from this sense of somehow having to, well, put on a, a sort of fake persona to match a particular ideal of how we're supposed to be, to be seemingly perfect according to whatever model we're adopting in a particular moment. Because only we can know our own motivation and our path is really to, to honor it, to purify it, to transform it, to be in touch with it, not to assume a kind of a persona of our imagination of a spiritual ideal. A few years ago in Arizona, <clears throat> I had a very funny experience because uh, the Dalai Lama was giving a week-long series of teachings on patience, and there were over 1,200 people who came to attend. We were all staying in this resort hotel just outside of town and it was great because it became something like a retreat center there. Every morning and afternoon the Dalai Lama would teach on patience and then every evening there would be Western Buddhist teachers who would speak and that very first evening the Western teachers were my friend Sylvia Borsina and myself. And I can remember getting up there to speak, and the Dalai Lama's throne was behind me. He wasn't in it, but still, it was very imposing. And I was sitting there in front of 1,200 people, which at that time was the largest group I'd ever spoken to, and I felt sort of nervous, and um, it was fine, you know, it was, it was just fine. And then <laughs> a few days later, a very funny incident happened, which um, put that evening in perspective. The Dalai Lama was using this particular text, Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is an 8th century text that talks about the entire path to enlightenment. And he was moving line by line through the manuscript and then presenting his commentary in Tibetan. While that was being translated, he would start looking at the upcoming pages that he would be speaking on next. And at one point, since his English is actually quite good, at one point during the translation, he looked up from the manuscript where he was reading the, the next pages and he said, no, no, that's not what I said. And then he and this translator got into this big disagreement. <laughs> and it was, it was actually very, it was over a very, what seemed to be a very minor point. Um, it was actually some point of syntax, like did she say that to him or did he say that to her to produce whatever incident it was that Shantideva then went on to talk about patience from. But he and the translator went back and forth and back and forth and say, no, your holiness, she said that to him. And all of them said, no, no, he said that to her. And then and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, um, the Dalai Lama flipped back through the pages of the manuscript to get to the particular chapter that was under dispute. He looked at it and then he burst into this really loud laughter and he said, 
ha, 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 I made a mistake. <laughs> and I thought, isn't that interesting? <laughs> Here he was, and he'd been caught in error in front of 1,200 people, and he was just laughing uproariously about it. And I wondered, you know, would I have been laughing so much if a few nights before I had made some mistake that uh, was pointed out <laughs> in front of 1,200 people. But he was this wonderful role model of basically an unconstricted heart. He wasn't trying to project a certain image or to pretend to be somebody, to be perfect, to never make a mistake. And he continually reflects this as he talks about his aspiration to bodhicitta, to compassion. And it's really quite beautiful. We come back to looking at our intention always and see where that takes us. That's one way we have perspective on all of this. We also have that sense of oneness and perspective from remembering that everything changes, that this world of presentation that is arising in front of us, it's almost like a dream. It's so translucent, it's so transparent. And the things that we take so to heart and we worry about and we fret over and we try to plan enough so that we'll be in control of, it's really absurd when we look clearly at how things actually are. And of course the knowledge that someday we're going to die is the great teaching of this. One time Joseph and I were teaching a retreat on the big island of Hawaii. Actually, uh, it was part of a retreat that Upandita later came and led. And I was sitting um, leading the first sitting after lunch. And I kept hearing the phone ring in the office below the meditation hall. And I knew that Joseph was doing a, an interview group in a different building. I kept expecting maybe, well, maybe a staff member will come and answer the phone or something, but no one did. And it just kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And I just thought, something's wrong. There's really something wrong. So I ended the sitting and I went down into the office to wait for what I thought would be the inevitable phone call. And sure enough, the phone rang. It was someone from the Civil Defense Department of Hawaii saying that the largest tidal wave in history was expected that day. <laughs> and because we were in a facility very near the ocean, we had about 45 minutes to evacuate. And then they told me we were about an hour away from the nearest safe location. I said to the person on the phone, you know, <laughs> we have 70 people here. We have only two vehicles. Any road that we take out has got to go right by the ocean. I don't think we're going to be able to get out of here in time. And she said, I'll call you back. <laughs> so I waited and waited. And a few minutes later, she called back and said, we're going to send a bus. And then she called back a few minutes later and said, we can't send the bus. Um, there's not enough time. The only thing she said we could do was to try to find shelter in the highest point. And since the land uh, had this tremendous undergrowth and it was really impassable, that meant going to the second floor <laughs> of, of the building. That was the highest point that we could reach. So I hung up the phone and went to find Joseph. And he was still doing his group interview <laughs> in this other building. So I stood there in the back of the room for a moment and I heard one of the yogis talking to him and he was speaking with a tone of tremendous unhappiness and displeasure about the knee pain he was experiencing in his sitting. And I stood there in the back of the room and I thought, boy, if you think you have a problem with your knee pain. I said, wait, just wait until you hear what I have to say. And it's not that, you know, I haven't had knee pain in my practice, because as you know, I have, and I certainly complained about it, and I felt very badly about it too, but suddenly, 
I was sitting there thinking, you don't know. <laughs> really, you don't know what a problem is. And then as it turned out, we did all this stuff and we brought all the stuff up to the second floor of the building and uh, we practiced and we waited and we waited and actually absolutely nothing happened. The tidal wave just somehow missed the island altogether. Whether that was because of our practice, <laughs> I could never say and I never would. But um, we just kind of quietly gathered all of our things, went back downstairs and, and uh, went on with the retreat. But it's always so interesting in moments just after that how everyone is just a little quieter and a little <laughs> deeper and a little less shattered by the things that come and go that are difficult. They are difficult to bear. There's no doubt about it. But our sense of priority is really strengthened. Our sense of perspective is really strengthened. Our understanding that our lives are fleeting, that they're uncertain, that it's really very dreamlike. I mean, can you imagine getting a phone call saying the largest tidal wave in history is coming to your retreat? <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. And the result of that is not grieving and it's not coldness and it's not despair but really it's the letting go of grasping over what we could never hold on to it's the letting go of fighting of struggling from what we could never prevent and so we can settle back into the moment with a much bigger perspective that's like being in that opera and seeing the entire show in the light of that sky. That's being free. It's being at ease in our own hearts because we don't fixate, we don't get caught. We can trust ourselves, we can trust our motivation, we can trust our understanding. And that becomes a real refuge to us. It's quite possible in our lives to be happy no matter what is happening. And everything happens. It happens to all of us. But there is some ability to be at one with what is, which is a very special kind of happiness. And that is possible in any of the circumstances of our lives. There's a beautiful story from the history of Buddhism, which just got made into an opera, actually, <laughs> that I saw again in Santa Fe. Um, it's the story of the Emperor Ashoka, who was an emperor in northern India a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha. And it said that in the beginning of his reign, he was a very bloodthirsty emperor and he would often wage war and battles and conquer territory just so he could have more. He could, he could lay claim to more territory as being his. And it's also said that he was a very unhappy person. Then one day after a particularly terrible battle, he was walking on the battlefield and he could see the carnage everywhere that in some way had been born out of his intention. And he was somewhat aghast at the, the bloodshed and the nature of it all when it said that a Buddhist monk went walking by, looking very peaceful and serene. He didn't say a word, he just walked on by. And Ashoka was quite struck. He thought, how is it that I, who have absolutely everything that a human being could want in the material realm, I, who have everything, am so unhappy. And here's this monk, he's got nothing. All he has is the begging bowl that he's carrying, the robes that he's wearing. He doesn't have anything, yet he seems so happy. So what is that? And he went and sought him out, came upon him, and asked him just that. He 
said, why do you seem so happy? And so that the monk responded by explaining some of the Buddha's teachings. And Ashoka was very moved by that and decided to really pursue the practice. He's very famous for having changed the nature of his rule. From that time on, he would grow trees and um, feed people and such rather than wage war. And he would, um, he was very famous for erecting these pillars throughout northern India so that as people went on pilgrimage, they would keep coming upon these pillars. And the, there's one which is my favorite, which says something like, the first few years of my practice were quite difficult. <laughs> but after that, it got a lot easier, so don't lose heart. I often um, reflect about that story because here's this monk who didn't say a word. He didn't say one single word. It's just his being. He was just happy. And that happiness, in a way, changed the course of history. It was Ashoka's son and daughter, both, who brought the teachings out of India to Sri Lanka, from where they spread to Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, Vietnam, and then Northern Asia, and around the world. So just think of that, without a word. That monk walked by, and 2,000 years later, here we are in Barry, Massachusetts, in one of those vast chains of interconnectedness. It is simply our being and the reflection of our being that is the expression of our deepest understanding and our deepest value. So we pay attention in any moment. We don't have to um, go out to proselytize and you know, conquer the world and, and demonstrate our utter perfection in some sanctimonious way or imaginary way. We just act from our best intention. We pay attention. And what we discover in the arising of perspective, of wisdom, of graciousness, is some ability to be happy nonetheless. Whatever's going on, happy doesn't mean, you know, jumping up and down with joy all the time. Happy means knowing who we are. It means knowing where peace is, knowing what wisdom tells us. It means knowing what's important. It means knowing we're going to die. It means knowing what's true. And we're happy. My Tibetan teacher, uh, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, once told us the story about leaving Tibet, where while in Tibet, he had been an extremely renowned Lama and um, very honored and respected and would have sometimes be sitting in a throne and would just be giving teachings to these thousands of people. And then with the Chinese invasion, he had to leave. And it was a very um, difficult passage out. He left with, I don't know, maybe 50 people or something, or uh, 70 people, and only five survived. And he ended up in the streets of Calcutta, begging. And he told us this whole story about the distress of leaving his family, never knowing if he'd see them again, and the real horror of the journey out, and how completely awful that was. And, then being in Calcutta, finding a place to stay at a Buddhist monastery, but not having any money to eat. And so he would just go begging on the streets, even for a cup of tea, and be sitting there thinking, oh, you know, like, that's so brutal, it's so horrible, it's so awful, it's just like, it's unbelievably painful to hear this. And he's telling this whole story, and then he ends it with the line, and I was very happy. And it's like my mind went tilt. <laughs> I said, replay, <laughs> what did you say? And he said, and I was very happy. And I thought, no way. <laughs> you know, he was poverty stricken, he was a refugee, he'd left his family, he'd lost everything. And he used to be, you know, just sitting on this throne and being given all these honors and now he was a beggar. And I said, no way, you know, he wasn't very happy, but he kept saying he was very happy. 
And he said that he was sustained through all of those events and all those sudden turns of fate by the truth of the Buddha's teaching. That he'd gone from being a very esteemed religious teacher in Tibet with great distinction and honor and addressing multitudes of spiritual aspirants to begging in the hot streets of Calcutta in a situation of poverty and a lot of hopelessness. And later on, he went from that to the United States, where he was again received as a highly revered teacher. What he said was, so many unexpected ups and downs, who can describe them? Isn't life like a series of dreams within a vast dreamlike mirage? He talked always about his intense love and devotion for the Buddhist teaching and that faith, that sense of connection, being what had borne the fruit of that deep happiness right in the midst of those inconceivable challenges. I think every so often, if we're very fortunate, we do catch a glimpse of a quality of happiness or peace or wholeness in another human being that's not at all bound to conditions that can sustain them through all kinds of extraordinary conditions in life. But it's also true that Kempo's inner peace in the midst of those difficult circumstances didn't diminish the reality of what had happened to him. It wasn't that he had even a trace of complacency about the pain of other refugees or beggars or the poverty-stricken people of Calcutta. Even though he was very happy and peaceful in the midst of his suffering, he wasn't oblivious to the anguish of others and he remained and remains intensely dedicated to helping fellow Tibetans and to bringing the teachings of the Buddha to others. It's like that sense of happiness could sustain and purify his finest motivations rather than somehow undermine them or weaken them. So his happiness is like a reminder to us of what, in fact, we are capable of. And as always in the Dharma, everything comes back to this moment that this isn't something that is just an ideal. It's not like a story we tell ourselves, you know, like, oh, if I were a better person, or maybe next year, or after I sit another three-month course, it's now that we have the capacity or the, the possibility of really acting in a way right now that can express these values. I have a friend who teaches in New York City and he used a very New York example. He said, imagine you're in a subway and some Martians come along and they zap the subway car so that everyone in the subway car is now stuck together for all eternity. There's no way of ever getting out. So what do you do? It's like you really begin to pay attention to each other in a different way. You know, if somebody's freaked out, you take care of them because it's going to be forever. There's no escape. You're all joined in some way. Someone's hungry, you feed them. You take care of people, you take care of yourself because we become like a unity. We're all doing this together. And so we are all doing this together. This is a perspective and an understanding we can bring to each moment. We can understand how we are interconnected. We can understand how our actions have consequences. We can understand the power of our intentions. Because when we say actions have consequences, that means our intentions have consequences as they take the form of action. And we can understand that there is no difference between our inner work and our outer work. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same qualities of patience and generosity and mindfulness and equanimity and so on. It's shining that very same light 
whether we're washing dishes or we're taking care of children or we're doing major financial deals or we're sitting on a cushion or on a chair. It's all really the very same thing. So there's no beginning and there's no, there's no ending ever to this process. And it is a process that is about happiness. Despite all the talk of suffering, it's a process that reveals the power and the possibility of our own happiness as we begin to look at ourselves somewhat differently, we begin to look at our lives somewhat differently. And it's about the, the natural and the inevitable generation of that happiness simply from the force of our being and the, the radical and uncontrived effect that this can have in the world. I also want to talk just a little bit about the nature of Sangha, having given one talk on the Buddha and one talk on the Dharma, it being the last of the refuges, which I didn't get to speak about. There have always been several meanings of the word Sangha. One is those beings who have walked a path and have had a level of uh, confidence engendered in them from their realization from which there's no turning back. There's a level of confidence that is so strong that there's no circumstance that will arise that can undermine that. And when we meet that in one way or another in somebody, it's something very powerful for us. It's like when I stood in the back of that room and I heard that man talking about his knee pain, knowing that the largest tidal wave in history was bearing down upon us, I had a kind of glimpse into the truth at that moment that was not available to him. I had a message, you know, or I had a kind of seeing or knowing that was not really accessible to him for another five minutes. And my perspective on his situation was very different than his perspective on his situation. Or when, as I mentioned, I looked at my first teacher and I said, isn't there an easier way? And he looked at me with really the look of lifetimes in his eyes, lifetimes of being on a path or even being on a path together so that my afternoon's travails were not so grievous in his eyes because they were just part of an infinite number of lifetimes of evolution and growth and change and understanding. That's a gift that is known as Sangha. It's somebody whose perspective, whose reflection, whose understanding uplifts our own. When Kempo in that moment said, I was happy, and I thought of how I am just walking down the streets of Calcutta, going to my hotel, and I thought, he was happy? That's Sangha. It's that moment of having our world open up because of the power of somebody else's vision and their view. The word Sangha also means, historically it means the monks and the nuns who from the time of the Buddha have preserved these teachings, who have kept them uh, alive and in a form that is, is very real and a living spirituality so that we can come together in Barry, Massachusetts 2,500 years later and we don't sit down and say, what do you think we should do? <laughs> you know, like maybe, you know, do this or do that, that there are there is a methodology, there are techniques, there's an understanding, there's a body of knowledge.
so that it's it's awesome really you know to pick up a text and and to think and to read um, about things that you may have experienced that day in your practice and you think well isn't that incredible you know that people dedicated their lives to this this preservation and then of course there is a meaning of sangha as the community who's walking the path together. It's that sense of solidarity, of realizing that sometimes together, however irritating it might be from day to day <laughs> or hour to hour, that there is really a strength in, in a community that sometimes we can do more easily together what would be more difficult to do alone. There was a very um, funny story I read once about this group of monks in the time of the Buddha who'd made this uh, sort of group resolve. I don't know that it would work, so I'm not encouraging it here, but um, it, was, it was actually a very simple resolve. You know, that the Buddha, in that emphasis on continuity of awareness, taught meditation in all four postures, that is, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, so that there is no posture in which we cannot and should not be mindful. So it's sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. And this group resolve was that if one of these monks was in one of those postures, as we always are, and they became overcome by a hindrance like greed or hatred, then they change posture. And when one did, the rest would. So there's this very funny story about this group of monks who all started doing walking meditation together when somebody got overcome by a hindrance and sat down. So they all sat down. And then someone else got overcome by a hindrance, so they, he stood up. And they all stood up. And then they all just kept doing these things together. So don't try it. <laughs> but. When you do read any of the um, Buddhist texts, and they talk about something we've talked about before, which is the proximate cause of the nearest arising condition for something else to arise, they also talk about many secondary conditions or powerful forces that can cause something or help something come into being. So it's said that the proximate cause of wisdom is wise attention. It's actually being able to pay attention in a clear way or in a wise way, and then we'll see what is. And it's said that the second most powerful cause for the arising of wisdom in one's life is having good friends. Because of that sense of solidarity or community or sharing values of supporting one another. And it's so commonly found in the Buddhist teachings, there are lists. There's so many lists that detail all of the different factors of enlightenment or the awakened mind. So there's wisdom and rapture and equanimity. And each of these qualities will have a proximate cause. And each of them will have all of these other conditions that help bring them about. And in every single one of those lists, you will find having good friends. Because it's really a tremendous support. Whether it's a teacher or somebody in the sense of um, Sangha in that way, or it is a community, there's some mechanism we seem to need that is like a mirror. It's somebody saying to us again and again, there is something greater that is possible for somebody just like you, some ability to really be in touch with yourself, to know who you are, to be peaceful, to be happy. There is some factor that it's, it's like a, um, a flame inside somebody that helps light a flame within us. And there's a peace within people through the force of their commitment and their joy in that commitment to the truth that helps motivate us.
so when the Buddha had gathered his first group of enlightened disciples, he said to them at some point, go out, go forth. Go out for the good of the many, for the welfare of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit, for the welfare, for the happiness of beings. That's the, the basic motivation of moving from a life that is very inner, directed, where we're exploring through the powers of concentration and mindfulness in a very intense way, our own inner being, and then we move out. We move out to the best of our ability for the good of the many and for the welfare of the many, out of compassion, dedicated to the happiness of, of all beings. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.